0: Welcome to Decisive Point, a U.S. Army War College Press production, featuring distinguished authors and contributors who get to the heart of the matter in national security affairs. Decisive Point welcomes Mr. Darren Colby, author of Toward Successful Coin, Shining Past Decline, featured in Parameters Summer 2021 issue. Mr. Colby is a and Peace Fellow at the Dickey Center for International Understanding at Dartmouth College. We're here to talk about your article, Toward Successful Coin, Shining Paths Decline. It talks about counterinsurgency in relation to Peru's left-wing insurgent movement, Sendero Luminoso. I know this decades-long story started in the late 1960s. Can you just give us a brief overview of Sendero Luminoso and how you see this organization fitting into coin doctrine? Sendero Luminoso, or Shining Path in English, was founded by this charismatic philosophy professor at the San Cristobal of Huamanga National University in Ayacucho, Peru. The story really started in the mid-1960s. Peru, at that time, was facing a lot of political and economic and social inequality. It had this land tenure system that was basically dominated by a handful of rich, mestizo landowners And there were a bunch of poor indigenous peasants that were basically sharecropping at the advantage of these handful of rich mestizos. Between 1965 and 1967, Guzman made several trips to China and this was when the Cultural Revolution was going on and he was really impressed by the Cultural Revolution and Maoist philosophy and how w- waging a people's war could in his mind lead to more equal social relations or what he saw as better social and economic relations that didn't exploit the majority of people in Peru. A few years later in 1969 he founded Sendero Luminoso or the shining paths of some of his students but at that point in Shining Path wasn't this full-blown violent insurgent movement. It was kind of like a radical student union that believed in the need to wage a people's war and wanted to create a new political and social structure within Peru. But that wasn't at all a threat to the state. In the early 1970s, his movement, student union, whatever we want to call it, started to spread to other universities in Peru, and this is what became the core cadre of The Shining Path. Between 1968 and 1980, when The Shining Path kicked off its violent campaign, Peru was actually ruled by this military government, mostly led by General Juan Velasco. It was very different than a lot of other military governments in that, for one, it implemented a lot of land reforms and created agricultural cooperatives that actually helped equalize social relations and make economic arrangements less exploitative of indigenous peasants. Throughout this time, from 1968 to 1980, the military government continually implemented democratic reforms until it held elections in 1980. So it was this long drawn out democratization process. In 1980, when this government finally called elections, that was when Sendero Luminoso kicked off its rebellion against the government. And it did so by burning ballot boxes in this small village called Chushi. At the time, the government had just transitioned from a military government, so it didn't want to deploy the military against civilian group if it didn't have to. It also just really underestimated Sendero Luminoso because this act of burning ballot boxes in one town and seemed like a really big deal. But between 1980 and 1992 when Guzman was arrested, it quickly became really brutal and ramped up its violence against civilians and even against other leftist groups that could have potentially been allies. Although. Guzman was really influenced by this idea of Maoist people's war. A lot of Sendero Luminoso's philosophy was also based on the writings of an earlier Peruvian philosopher named Jose Carlos Mariategui, who advocated for a socialist revolution to transform the sort of feudal land ownership system within Peru. Although Mariategui didn't necessarily advocate for the sort of violent methods that Shining Path used. Eventually, starting mostly in 1990, the government reorganized its security forces and got a lot better at counterinsurgency and arrested Guzman in 1992 in a police operation. After Guzman's arrest, the group really rapidly declined. Although it didn't totally decline, the group still actually exists today, but in a much weaker form. It engages in much more drug trafficking today than it previously did and is much less ideological than it was. And so for the second part of the question, in terms of coin doctrine, I think the case of Sendero is a bit of a puzzle because the conventional wisdom, I think dating back to the Vietnam War, is that insurgency sort of happened because there's... These grievances that people have with the government, whether they be social or economic or political, from having a repressive government. And these grievances lead people to form insurgencies to try to overthrow the government and and address those grievances. I think this model that comes out of the Vietnam War, when although the U.S. wasn't very successful, it saw some success with the CORDS program and... Mac v, so a lot of those ideas are still c- incorporated into like Field Manual 3-24, which is still what the Army and Marine Corps and other services and even, I think, allied countries sort of base their counterinsurgency operations off of. But in the case of the Shining Path, it was sort of opposite. When Shining Path finally decided to kick off its campaign, Peru had kind of hit a crescendo of democratization and improving social relations and economic equality, so it is in that regard a bit of a puzzle for this mainstream sort of hearts and mind theory. Based on your analysis, what are the three essential elements to successful counterinsurgency? helping to create and bolster civil society organizations, improving civil military relations, and then finally driving a wedge between the insurgents and their potential recruits. So the idea behind strengthening civil society is that civil society organizations can encourage political participation. And if there's no way for people to make their voices heard and address their grievances, even if they don't really like who's running their government, having a way to address grievances and make their voice heard and feel like they're not totally powerless is probably going to be preferable to risking their lives joining an insurgency or potentially being arrested or other outcomes that would be less preferable to participating in a mainstream legal organization. And so by bolstering civil society organizations, the idea is to hopefully get to a point where people do feel like they can make their voices heard within the political system, which would be preferable to joining an insurgent movement. Then the second element, improving civil military relations, is really important because the military or other security forces that are doing counterinsurgency are generally going to be the face of the government for most people where these operations are, where counterinsurgency is going on. If security forces are going out and terrorizing civilians and don't have any respect for human rights, it lends a lot of credibility to the narrative of the insurgents that the government is no longer useful. It doesn't serve its purpose. In that case, if the security forces are really repressive, even people who don't really believe in the insurgency's goals might join the insurgency just so that they have some form of protection from the security forces. But on the other hand, if the security forces can foster good civil-military relations, then that will undermine the narrative of the insurgents that this government doesn't have any credibility and not alienate civilians and drive them into joining the insurgency. The final element I talk about was driving a wedge between insurgents and their pool of recruits or their potential recruits. And I think this is pretty important because an insurgency can't really do much if it doesn't have people who want to join it. It's just not going to be able to defeat government forces. Is it possible to have all three of these in place and working well and COIN's efforts still fail? Unfortunately, I I do think so in some cases. I do think that these three elements are really essential for counterinsurgents to get right, but they're definitely not the only elements of a good counterinsurgency campaign. Thanks, Darren, for being here today and taking time to do this with me. Well, I really appreciate you inviting me to be on the podcast today, so thank you.